Hello and welcome to the Jewish's Podcast, a space for all things Jewish magic, mysticism, and practice. My name is Tso and I'm the creator of Jewish's, a shop, a website, and an online community. Every week I'm here to talk about my favorite parts of Judaism, especially the magical bits. From discussions of folklore and mythology to deep dives into the practices of our ancestors, I am here to talk about it all. Hello and welcome to the Jewish's podcast. If I had told you when I was first thinking about making a podcast that I would need to do an episode on blood libel, I would have laughed at you. I was hit with the, the realization that I should just get blood libel out of the way because it's just going to keep appearing in episodes as we go further. I think I've had to mention blood libel in every episode so far. And based on how little people know about it, I felt it was a thing that I have to get through. Blood libel is unfortunately a huge defining part of Jewish history, as much as we wish it wasn't. Before we start, I want to put a blanket warning. This episode will contain discussions of murder, violence, assault, cannibalism, infanticide, torture, mass shootings, and ritualistic killings. I will not go into much detail as you don't want to have to hear it, and I don't want to have to say it. it will, I will also not be listing every single case of blood libel out there, as there are too many, and I cannot fathom having to go research every single one. I will go over the most prominent cases, and for everyone that I do speak about, there are dozens that I don't. These are, again, not the only ones. I can understand if this is one that you want to skip, but I urge you, especially those of you who aren't Jewish, to stick around and learn something that you may not have known, because blood libel is a lot more prevalent today than you'd like to think. If this episode takes you a couple tries to listen to fully, that's okay. I do think it's important that some of you educate yourselves. Understanding how historical anti-Semitism appears today is crucial. For those of you who are part of the witchy or spiritual communities, I especially ask you to listen to the entirety of this episode, because your communities are highly likely to perpetuate blood libel under the guise of magic, superstition, lore, UPG, um, unverified personal gnosis. I also want to remind you all that I have a Patreon where you can support me and therefore support the podcast, but you can also request specific episodes that you're interested in. I think that's all of my housekeeping notes, so it's time to begin. I also want to say that I spent days researching this, It took me forever to write this script because I had to take so many pauses because it was truly harrowing to research. According to Oxford Languages, blood libel is defined as an accusation that Jewish people used the blood of Christians in religious rituals, especially in the preparation of Passover bread, matzah, that was perpetrated throughout the Middle Ages and sporadically until the early 20th century. However, There are expanded definitions that specifically mention the inclusion of Christian children and infants. While murder is not specifically mentioned, it's implied. There are also other definitions that include specifically drinking blood and not even having to use it in a ritual, just enjoying the taste. In the modern day, the definition need not be of Jews using Christian's blood specifically, but the blood of any non-Jew for a myriad of rituals or for cannibalistic purposes. Now, I want to make it clear, blood is not kosher. It's not kosher. So how on earth could these myths come to be? Let's look into the origins. While most sources will say that blood libel originated in the 12th century Christian Europe, 
there is a bigger argument to be made that it actually originated in the second century BCE in the writings of the Alexandrian Apion. Apion? Apion? So Apion wrote about it, but obviously he's predating Christianity. So whether or not it falls into the true quote-unquote definition of blood libel is debated. According to Albert Ehrman, who published an article on the topic of blood libel in the journal Tradition, a journal of Orthodox Jewish thought, published by the Rabbinical Council of America in 1976, Apion stated that the Jews annually kidnap a Greek, fatten him up for a year, and then convey him to a forest where they offer his body as a sacrifice, eat his internal organs, and while immolating the Greek, would swear an oath of eternal hatred toward all Greeks. But Apion wasn't the only Greek to accuse Jews of what would eventually become blood libel. Democritus said, every seven years, the Jews catch a stranger whom they offer as a sacrifice, killing him by tearing his flesh to shreds. However, Ehrman continues that these were the only two Hellenic accusations of blood libel, but notes that very early Christians were very often accused of the same thing. However, as Christianity rose to power, they very quickly lost steam. For those of you who don't know, Christianity became the state religion of Rome in the year 380 BC, with the Edict of Thessalonica, Thessalonica, we all know that Greek and Roman and Latin are not my languages. This decree also gave Christians the power to persecute non-Christians, but that is a that's a discussion for another time. However, Socrates Scholasticus, not to be confused with regular old Socrates, the creator of my least favorite me- method of lecturing, the Socratic seminar, is someone we should discuss. The lesser-known Socrates was a 5th century church historian who authored, oh, it's, it's a lot of Greek, Historia Ecclesiastica, or church history. Let's move it along. I, I cannot stress enough that these are not my languages. Understudy Socrates claimed that Jews bound a young Christian boy to a cross, killing him in the process. To quote from Christina Stibnika of Warsaw University's article entitled The Incident at Imna... In Meshtar, Jews and Christians at the beginning of the 5th century. Soon after, the Jews renewed their malevolent and impious practices against the Christians and drew down upon themselves deserved punishment. At a place named In Meshtar, situated between Chalcis and Antioch in Syria, the Jews were amusing themselves in their usual way with a variety of sports or games. In this way, they indulged in many absurdities and at length impelled by drunkenness, they were guilty of scoffing at Christians and even Christ himself. And in derision of the cross and those who put their trust in the crucified one, they seized a Christian boy and have bound and having bound him to a cross, began to laugh and sneer at him. But in a little while, while becoming so transported with fury, they scourged the child and he died under their hands. This conduct occasioned a sharp conflict between them and the Christians. And as soon as the, as soon as the emperors were informed of the circumstance, they issued orders to the governor of the province to find out and punish the delinquents. And thus the Jewish inhabitants of this place paid the penalty for the wickedness they had committed in their impious sport. Now, while these events sound horrible, the death of a child is always just terrible. Most scholars agree that this didn't happen. This story was later connected with the Feast of Purim, which Devnika writes, had long been regarded as an expression of Jewish aversion against Christians, as indicated by the Jews' drunkenness and enjoyment, which Socrates stressed. For those of you unfamiliar with the story of Purim, 
It involved a proposed genocide of the Jews, but in the end, a brave Jewish queen, Esther or Hadassah, risks her life to save our people, and the evil Haman, who, you know, tried to execute a genocide against us, is hanged in the gallows that were meant to kill a Jew. So for part of history, part of celebrating Purim was to hang an effigy of Haman. Not always, not everywhere, but apparently some Jews did. And the Christians took this as an offense against Jesus Christ and Christianity as a whole, leading to a particularly dangerous time for Jews. Shtemnika includes that in the Theodosian Code, there are specific stipulations forbidding the Jews to sneer at Christianity during the feast, Jewish Feast of Purim. So Jews celebrate surviving genocide, and Christians say, actually, you are offending us. But this is not the only holiday in Judaism that Christians have demonized and used in this excuse to harass and at times persecute Jews. This kind of anti-Semitism was ingrained within parts of Hellenic and early Christian culture, lying beneath the surface, making its way to Europe, where they reappeared in 12th century and spread like wildfire, leading us to the blood libel we know today. So, where modern blood libel begins. In the year 1144, a 12-year-old boy named William went missing in the village of Norwich, England. When he was found dead, a monk at the Norwich Benedictine Mon Monastery named Thomas of Monmouth claimed that it was the Jews who had taken him and crucified him. But his accusation went further than that. He claimed that a monk who was a convert from Judaism told him that it was a ritual sacrifice. To quote, In the ancient writings of his father, it was written that the Jews, without the shedding of human blood, could neither obtain their freedom nor could they ever return to their fatherland. Hence it was laid down by them in ancient times that every year they must sacrifice a Christian in some part of the world to the Most High God and in scorn and in contempt of Christ, so they might avenge their sufferings on him, inasmuch as it was because of Christ's death that they had been shut out from their own country and were in exile as slaves in a foreign land. Wherefore the chief men and rabbis of the Jews who dwell in Spain assemble together at Narbonne, where the royal seed resides, and where they are held in the highest estimation, and they cast lots for all the country which the Jews inhabit. So what they're saying here is that every year the rabbis get together in Narbonne, and then they cast lots, which is a form of divination. They decide where they're going to sacrifice a Christian for either eternal life, for going back to their fatherland, which I'm assuming they mean historical Israel, it's long clear. But what was his proof, you ask? Well, literally only this monk. All of this is based on his writing. Now, according to Erman, no Jews were specifically murdered in retaliation for these accusations of the death of William, but the remains of 17 bodies were found in a well in Norwich dating back between the 12th and 13th centuries. And five of those bodies which were found, and at this point they're skeletal remains, according to DNA tests, are all of the same Jewish family. So five of the bodies are from a single Jewish family. And this is a relatively new um, find. So a lot of the texts that I found that were written before this don't include it. So whether or not Jews were actually killed in result for the of killed as a result of the accusations 
is is now unclear. But even if they weren't killed as a result of the blood libel, the word spread very, very quickly. And not by quickly, I mean there were literally four other accusations in England alone before jumping to continental Europe. In France, in the May of 1171, it happened again. This time, the 40-person community of Blas was murdered by being burned alive for the so-called charge of ritual murder of a child whose body was never found. A very simple way of understanding how trumped up these charges were is to know that 32 of the Jews, including 17 women, were specifically offered clemency by becoming Christians. We're all being very much honored with my cat Phoebe scratching at the door. For the crime of murdering a child in ritual murder, they were willing to accept the conversion. But the Jews of Blas martyred themselves, rather being burned alive than bowing their heads to Christianity. Now, you look me in the eye and tell me you would accept a conversion from someone you genuinely believe murdered a child. It makes no sense. Hermann continued with the mention that the Rabbeinu Tam, 1100 to 1171, Rashi's grandson, proclaimed that the 20th Sivan was a fast day for the Jews of England, France, and Germany in honor of the martyrs who had their lives stolen in the name of Christianity. But these instances, roughly 30 years apart, do not mention the, the defining factors of modern blood libel, and that is consuming or drinking the blood. And these accusations didn't come until slightly later. One memorable and prominent accusation came from the Cardinal Odo of Chateauroux, who was the Chancellor of the University of Paris. While debating Rabbi Yechiel of Paris, he claimed, to quote, you Jews eat the blood of the uncircumcised Gentiles, for thus did Balaam prophesy, prophesy and drinks the blood of the slain, Numbers 23-24. I can only imagine how confusing a moment that must have been for Rabbi Yechiel. I truly cannot fathom what crossed his mind when he heard that. But Herman specified, theorizes that Odo was inspired by Dios Cassius, who we will tragically have to discuss in a little bit. Dios Cassius was a pagan historian, 155 to 215. I must have written that down wrong. That does not look right. Either way, born in 155, who wrote that the Jews of Cyrene, Egypt, and Cyprus revolted under the rule of Emperor Trajan, 98 to 117, and killed 500,000 Greeks and Romans. I looked into it, and the number appears to vary between sources, but almost no one I found went as high as 500,000, so take that with a grain of salt. Once they were done, Dio says the Jews ate their flesh, made clothes from their skin and entrails, and anointed themselves with their blood. But he's the only one who said this, which leads historians to call exaggeration on his gory, gory details. Mind you, though, the reason Cassius or Dios Cassius cites for the revolt in the first place is that the Romans wished to never allow a Jewish temple in Jerusalem again, but rather to turn the Temple Mount into a miniature Rome. So I'm not defending the supposed cannibalism. But I would argue that maybe Rome had a reason to be creating rumors about the Jews who did not want Rome in Jerusalem to begin with. So back to Odo, the anti-Semitic chancellor. One theory is that he came across Dio's fictitious accounts 
But another argues that in uh, 1258, we're going we're gonna to try a name here, Toma de Contempor, hmm? no, no idea, wrote in, oh, it's more Latin, Bonam Universale de Aptibus, that from the time that Jews shouted, his, meaning Jesus's blood, be on us and on your children, Matthew 27, 25, Jewish men had been afflicted with a secret malady often appearing as sort of male menstruation. He continues the belief that the cure for this was to drink Christian blood. If you listen to my episode on Jews and the witch craze of Europe, you are more than familiar with this accusation that cisgendered Jewish men menstruated from their anuses, which could only be cured with Christian blood. And this ties together Gentile women witches and Jews as a whole as cannibals who menstruated. And cannibals meaning they drank and ate Christians. I highly recommend you listen to that episode, but we will continue on here. In the 13th century text called the Nitzahon Yashan Noshan, the Old Book of Confutation, an anonymous Jew rebuts against the claims of blood libel, giving specific instructions for Jews on how to answer when questioned about it. To quote, The Christians reproach us and say we murder their children and drink their blood. Answer them, No nation has been as strictly admonished against committing murder as we have. And this applies equally to the murder of non-Jews. You shall not murder, Exodus 20, 13, Deuteronomy 5, 17, means you, not may, you may not murder anyone. This includes the non-Jew as well. Why is this so? Because God made man in his own image, Genesis 9, 6. And it is also written, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. This applies to everyone. Furthermore, we are also more scrupulous than any other nation in regard to blood. For even with meat that has been ritually slaughtered and is fit for consumption, we nonetheless salt it and are very careful to remove all the blood. But you libel us in order to shed our blood, as David prophesies in Psalm 44. For he foresaw in the future you would blaspheme us in order to shed our blood, and you would kill us for the sake of our religion. Therefore he did pray for us. Thou art my king, O God, command the salvation of Jacob. Psalm 44, 5. But on Christmas Day of 1235... Five children of a miller were killed in Fulda, Germany, in what is now the Hesse region. The miller and his wife returned home and found it burned to the ground. There burned bodies of their sons within it. Nothing that was written in this text above could have stopped what was coming. Perhaps prompted by their neighbors, the parents of these five children began to accuse the Jews of doing it. And the reason, well, there was none. They claimed the Jews killed them and took their blood, one claiming the, stating they even put the blood into wax bags. Some had no explanation, and others, quote, stated it was for, quote-unquote, medical reasons that the Jews t- killed them. Three days later, 34 Jews were slaughtered by the Crusaders with no proof, no trial, and no evidence. The townspeople, after allowing for the murder of 34 innocent people, loaded the boy's body into a cart and took them to the emperor as evidence of the evilness of the Jews. They traveled apparently over 100 to 150 miles, spreading this story throughout Germany. Mind you, again, they were walking, on foot, dragging with them in a cart these dead bodies. Any person they met along the road, they told their story to. When they reached the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick II began to investigate. He called together a group of people, including Christians and Jewish converts. Uh, At the time, it generally meant Jews who became Christians, not people who became Jewish. Nevertheless, he gathered a group of people to investigate this accusation. 
And here was his final word. It is clear that it is not indicated in the Old Testament or in the New that Jews lust for the drinking of human blood. Rather, precisely the opposite. They guard against the intake of all blood. Expressly in the Bible, which is called Genesis in English, in the laws given by Moses and in the Jewish decrees, which are called in Hebrew, Talmud, we can surely surely assume that for those to whom even the blood of permitted animals is forbidden, desire for human blood cannot exist. As a result of the horror of the matter, the prohibition of nature, and the common bond of the human species, in which they also join Christians. Moreover, they would not expose the danger of their substance and for persons that which they might have freely when taken from animals. That was a sentence that was hard to read. Moreover, they would not expose to danger their substance and persons for which they might have freely when taken from animals. By this sentence of the princes, we pronounce the Jews the aforesaid place and the rest of the Jews of Germany completely absolved of this imputed crime. Therefore, we decree that no one, whether cleric or layman, proud or humble, whether under the pretext of preaching or otherwise, judges, lawyers, citizens, or others, shall attack the aforesaid Jew in Jews individually or as a group as a result of the aforesaid charge, nor shall anyone cause them notoriety or harm in this regard. Let all know that, since the Lord is honored through his servants, whoever shows himself favorable and helpful to the Jews will surely please us. However, whoever presumes to contravene the edict of this present condemnation of our absolution bears the offense of his majesty. Very, very nice idea, Um, but can I just say? Little too late, dude. Not only were 34 Jews already killed, but the decree that was just stated did absolutely nothing to stop what was coming because blood libel already existed and it was already poisoning the minds of people around the globe. In March of 1247, two Franciscans, who were members of a monastic order founded in about 1215, accused the Jews of Varias, France, of crucifying a Christian child and using his blood for ritual purposes. Jews were tortured and killed. The surviving Jews tried to appeal to Pope Innocent IV, one of them, for help. He gratefully condemned the actions, and so did the next Pope, Gregory V. He also condemned blood level, but brought up another fascinating aspect not yet discussed. To quote, Since it happens occasionally that some Christians lose their Christian children, the Jews are accused by their enemies of secretly carrying off and killing these same Christian children, and of making sacrifices of the heart and blood of these very children. It happens, too, that these parents of these Christians, or some other Christian enemies of the Jews, secretly hide these very children in order that they may be able to injure these Jews, and in order that they may be able to extort from them a certain amount of money by redeeming, redeeming them from their straits. This here suggests, as do some other texts, that Christians use Jews as a scapegoat, which is not new at all, but if they owed money to a Jew, they could use this to get out of debt. They could also use it as a way of avoiding repercussions for the death of their child if it was their fault. If a Jew, if a child died from some form of violence or negligence or even an accident, rather than deal with the repercussions of child abuse and murder, it was far more convenient to simply accuse the local Jewish community of it. Chances are they would be killed before the papal authorities stepped in, if they did at all. This is a perfect example of what happened in Fulda. The boys tragically burned to death, but rather than deal with that, the parents and the townspeople found solace in the brutal murder of 34 others. And if they just want to get out of debt, hide your kid in your cellar for a couple days, wait till the Jew has either been killed or run out of town, and boom, bam, you're out of debt. So now we know where blood libel originated. We've gone over the first couple, you know, first couple prominent cases. So now we can move on to more famous cases. 
I'm going to try and go in chronological order, but I've messed up the chronology from time to time because I researched out of order just so I could stop staring at the same pieces of paper. So please forgive me. Uh, And like I mentioned in the beginning, I'm not going to list all the cases, but rather some famous ones or ones I already have loads of research on. Again, these are not all of them. We're going to start with Little Hugh. Among these tales was that of Little Hugh, whose death in 1255 occasioned the first anti-Jewish accusation in England to produce an official response and sanction from the royal authorities, and the first to result in the execution of Jews there. The story was told in contemporary chronicles, including by Matthew Paris and an Anglo-Saxon Norman ballad. These texts, along with the shrine in Lincoln, guaranteed that Hugh's memories was preserved. Magda Teeter, the author who continues to speculate that one of the only reasons that these accusations stopped in England is that England expelled the Jews in 1290. And in case you did not know that, England officially expelled its Jewish population in the year 1290, so it makes sense that the accusations stopped when there were no more Jews to accuse. So who was Little Hugh? While I take a sip of water. On the 27th of August, 1255, a young boy named Hugh went missing. In July, his body was found in a well of a Jewish resident of Lincoln, England. At the time, there were a great deal of Jews in Lincoln to celebrate a wedding. So when a Jew, whose name is debated, but he's generally referred to as Joppin, reported the body, a priest named John of Lexington convinced him to blame it upon the prominent Jews who were in town in exchange for a pardon. Not only was he to blame these Jews for the boy's death, but to say that they had crucified him. A month later, when Henry Henry III arrived in Lincoln, he not only revoked Joppin's pardon, but had him tied to a wild horse and dragged through the city before hanging him. The 92 Jews who were in Lincoln at the time were taken to London, where 18 were promptly executed. King Henry confiscated property from those he executed. Remember, these were prominent Jews who most likely had a bit of wealth and property, and he supposedly ransomed the rest. It's also important that you know that the Statute of Jewry was issued by Henry III of England in 1253, two years prior. But let's take a peek. Article 1 provided that any Jew who could only remain in England only if he or she would serve us in some way. Article 2 deemed that synagogues could not be constructed. Only those that existed in the time of King John could stand. Article 3 demanded that Jews lower their voices in synagogues so that Christians could not hear them. Article 4 placed a duty on Jews to pay their local Christian church. Article 5 banned Christians' wet nurses and servants for working and Christians working for Jews and banned all Christians from eating with Jews or abiding with them in their houses. Article 6 banned Jews from buying or eating meat in Lent. Article 7 banned Jews from disparaging or publicly disputing the Christian faith. Article 8 banned secret familiarity between Jewish men and Christian women and Christian men and Jewish women. Article 9 commanded that every Jew wear his badge conspicuously upon his breast. Article 10 banned Jews from entering churches except for transit. Article 11 barred Jews from hindering another's conversion. Article 12 required Jews to obtain a license to live in any town other than those with established Jewish communities. Article 13 set out that the justice of the Jews were to enforce the articles and that they were to be rigorously observed on pain of forfeiture of the chattels of the said Jews. So let's just go over that real quick so we can all think about that. Um, You can't build a new synagogues. 
And if you're in synagogue, you have to be quiet so Christians can't hear you. You have to pay your church as a Jew, you know, your local one. Um, Christians can't work for Jews. You can't actually eat meat because Christians have a holiday. You, know, you can't say anything negatively about Christians or Christian faith. You can't date a Christian. You have to wear a badge labeling yourself as a Jew on your breast. You can't go into a church. You can't try and stop anyone from converting to Christianity because, again, their goal here is to make you Christian. Um, and if you want to live somewhere that doesn't already have a Jewish community, you've got, you got to get a license. So that background info on Henry kind of explains why he was so willing to condemn 92 Jews with absolutely zero evidence. Zero. The local church also made a pretty penny off of Little Hugh's name. They erected a shrine known as Little St. Hugh because there is a regular you know, big St. Hugh. And it draws tons of visitors to it. And it drew tons of visitors to it. It was also so culturally significant that it is mentioned in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, particularly in the Prioress's Tale, which literally has a rendition of Little Hugh and then mentions him by name. The legend of Little Hugh, O young Hugh of Lincoln, slain also with cursed Jews, as is notable for it is for it is but a little while ago. Old English is also not my language. Magda Teeter brings us to the modern day with Little Hugh. In May of 2015, members of the British movement, a white supremacist group in the United Kingdom, gathered in the town of Lincoln to revive a tradition of the old English Middle Ages. The group proceeded to the Lincoln Cathedral, where they wanted to, quote, honor Little Hugh of Lincoln. Despite being turned away by the priests who let them know that he isn't a saint, the neo-Nazi stated, We are here today in memory of little Saint Hugh, who was murdered in the year 1255 by Jews. He was just nine years old. Medieval historian Matthew Paris recorded the event. A Jew named Joppin confessed to the murder and implicated the wider Jewish community of the time in this crime. Joppin suggests that the killing of Hugh was the ritualistic religious sacrifice. The modern statement here is an abomination and an insult to the memory of little Saint Hugh. So yeah, literal neo-Nazis use the blood libel of the 1200s now to justify their hatred of Jews. Again, zero evidence, only given to us by priests and monks. So Christians said it. That's it. But the next case is perhaps the most famous of all when it comes to blood libel. Simon of Trent. On the evening of Maudie Thursday, March 23rd, 1475, a toddler named Simon went missing. His family searched, but to no avail. It was the second night of Passover, and immediately rumors began to swirl that it was the Jews who had killed him. After reporting his son missing to the Bishop Hindabach, worried he had fallen into a nearby canal and drowned, a search team was sent out by the bishop specifically searching Jewish homes. Samuel, who was a prominent Jew in the area, specifically at his home searched thoroughly. Brunetta, Samuel's wife, provided them with the tools they needed during the search, and every Jew cooperated fully, and the search party left empty-handed. But on the 26th, when a Jewish servant in Samuel's house found the body in the canal that flowed under this house, the very one his father was worried he had drowned in, Samuel and his household reported his body to the authorities immediately, despite the fact that they knew they were under investigation simply for being Jewish. So 
They knew they were being investigated. Their house was already searched. And when they found the body, mind you, this canal flowed from upstream down beneath his home. When they found the body, they reported it immediately. A preliminary autopsy of Simon's body was performed at Samuel's home before it was moved to the hospital for further examination. But 10... But eight Jews were immediately arrested, among them the heads of the three Jewish families living in Trent, Samuel, Israel, and Tobias. The day after the autopsy, additional Jews were arrested, including visitors to Trent and servants in the existing Jewish household, along with Samuel's wife, Brunetta, who was the only woman arrested at this point. But more would come. The Jews were arrested with nothing more than the fact that they were Jewish and that, quote, the wounds on the boy's body emitted blood when the Jews were present and proof it was believed of Jews' culpability in the boy's death because experience shows that wounds on the dead emit blood when a murderer stands near the corpse. So they believed that because Simon's body bled when Jews were standing near it, the Jews were the murderers because, oh, my cat is causing trouble, because murderers being near a corpse make it bleed. Which makes sense if they're actively murdering them, but not if they're not doing anything. But the Christian community got to work. They created pamphlets in multiple languages and disseminated their version of events immediately, claiming that the Jews had murdered him for ritual usage. Tiberino, one man responsible for creating and sending out pamphlets, is quoted as saying, so that Jews may be eliminated for the whole Christian world and the memory of them utterly vanish from the land of the living. Jews, Tiberino wrote, not only devour Christian property through usury, but also feast on the living blood of our sons, afflicting them with terrible punishments in their synagogues and cruelly slaughtering them in the place of Christ. So it's safe to say this man was a raging anti-Semite. I absolutely refuse to say what I read when I was studying on this next part because it was so vile and foul that I literally cannot imagine having to say it out loud. Quite frankly, reading it made me sick and I had to take a very long break from script writing because it's, it is horrific. And I say this as someone who writes fiction. I've written horror. I've written gore. What they, what this man wrote, I, I don't have words for what I will say is that Tiberino described horrifying cannibalism, which was literally not possible based on how the body was found whole with minor wounds. He wasn't, com he wasn't completely fine, but um, the things he described, not possible. The events he described are a pure fantasy of his own invention, but that did not stop people from believing it. He specifically tied the boy's death to Passover, juxtaposing his horrifying story of events with the quote-unquote Holy Christian Easter by saying that Passover was this horrific thing and Christ Easter was whole. And this association between Passover and cannibalism would never fully go away. Not only this, but he wrote his version of what happened before the trial for the Jewish families of Trent even began. His letters and pamphlet, pamphlets reached those in power in the trial, especially the bishop, very early, setting everything against the Jewish community before it even started. 
Again, a Jewish community who had done nothing but report the body of a child, knowing full well that they were already being investigated for it. But it wasn't over for the Jews of Trenton yet. They were routinely tortured after being imprisoned until they, quote unquote, confessed. One Jew is quoted to have said, tell me what you want me to say and I will say it. To quote Magda Teeter once more, from early on, the investigators seemed to have a specific truth in mind when questioning the Jews and wishing to hear it turned torture to elicit it. When first interrogated, even under only the threat of torture, the Jews offered what would become the first version of events. For days, this version remained quite consistent, containing details about the finding of the body and affirming Jewish innocence. This remained the case even when torture was first implemented. When eight men had already been executed, the rest of the Jewish community, men, women, and children, still in custody, word got to Rome and the Pope stepped in. He demanded court documents which magically went missing and had what was there had loads of holes in it, including missing testimonies prior to torture, missing witness statements that went in the Jews' favor, and very importantly, missing the point that the Jewish community had reported finding Simon's body the minute they found it. And this is proved by the fact that Simon's body was supposedly still very, I hate to say it like this, but fresh. The bishop, however, was a dog with a bone, disobeying direct orders from the Pope, causing issues with the papal emissary, and lashing out against the Jewish community as hard as he could, even when the Pope suggested to go another way. One woman died as a result of torture. Three others were forced to convert to Christianity under threat of death and also being tortured. And their conversion included being washed in the urine of a virginal boy. However, I had difficulty ascertaining an official death toll as different sources cited different facts here. According to Jewish Virtual Library, 17 Jews were tortured for 15 consecutive days until they confessed. One died in prison. I believe these were men right here. One died in prison, eight were burned at the stake, two were strangled, one even after converting to Christianity. Five more were executed after the papal intervention, and then Jewish Virtual Library cites that four women accept Christianity. But according to Tater, one never actually did. She just died, and then the bishop claimed she had converted to Christianity with no evidence. However, there's one key aspect that I didn't, I can't cover in full, but Tater stated it perfectly. At the heart of the trial in Trent were not only anti-Jewish sentiments, but also a clash between Rome and Trent. This clash went far beyond questions of the authenticities of miracles and the authorization of the cult of Simon, of authority and power, and of traditional practices and religious control. At its center were cultural and political differences between the Italian Rome and the Germanic Trent. Differences that signaled subsequent trajectories in the history and memory of blood libels against Jews in Europe, soon to be divided by the Reformation. So what we're seeing here is the bishop, Rick, in Trent had their own idea, Rome had another, and Jews were caught in the middle and ended up dying. But their deaths would not be the last we hear of it. As a result of this violence, nearby city of Vicenza prohibited Jewish money lending, you know, mind you, one of the only jobs Jews could have at the time because we were forbidden from working in almost every other industry. They prohibited it in 1479 and fully expelled all the Jews in 1486. 
It is also said that the rabbis of Italy decreed that no Jew could settle in Trent ever again. Simon was a martyr who was canonized about a century later. He had a dedicated cult across Europe for roughly four centuries, continually spreading blood libel against Jews. But after the Second Vatican Council, 1962 to 1965, the entire episode was declared a fraud. Simon's name was removed from the calendar of saints' days in 1965. But his sainthood being stripped from him was not the last we will hear about the Simon about Simon of Trent. In 2007, a group in Italy sought to revive the cult of Simon of Trent. And in April 2019, a gunman entered a synagogue in Poen near San Diego, killing one and injuring several others. In his online manifesto, he invoked Simon of Trent, saying, You are not forgotten, Simon of Trent. The horror you and countless children have endured at the hands of the Jews will never be forgiven. <sighs> Sorry, I have more script written, but I'm... I have... My heart breaks for the death of a child. And I break thinking about how his death was used to justify the murder and persecution of Jews for centuries. For centuries. And I mean, it's 2021 as I'm recording this. 2019 is when someone used his name as part of their justification for murdering Jews in 2019. I'm going to take a break because I can't talk about this right now. I'm going to take a break and I'll come back to recording in a while. Simon of Trent stands to be one of the most famous cases of blood libel, and it also had massive repercussions. If you were surprised that the popes have, for the most part, defended Jews in this story so far, don't worry, they're not going to surprise you any longer. The extremely weak defense of the Jews in Trent appears to be the last time the papacy spoke up against blood libel. To quote, the papal refusal after 1583, and certainly after 1755, to reissue public condemnations of accusations that Jews killed Christians for their blood, the dominant charge in Eastern Europe, spoke louder than the previous protections. So their refusal to say anything was much louder than when they actually did say anything. With the canonization of Simon and the subsequent silence of the Pope, blood libel was validated, but he's not the only blood libel saint. Gabriela Bialystok, everyone please forgive my Polish, I did try and find pronunciations, I listened to a bunch of them. Bialystok is what we're going with. Um, Gabriela Bialystok is a prominent case of Eastern European blood libel. According to N. Kizienko, the first East Slavic Orthodox theologian to ar articulate the blood accusation was Archimandrite Janiki Halitowski. His Righteous Messiah was first published in Polish in Chernihiv and in, and in Ukrainian translation in Kiev in 1669. In describing various Jewish, quote, evil deeds, Haliatovsky included 12 examples of ritual murder in different European countries, mostly taken from Polish and Jewish sources, and adduced four reasons for why Jews might need the blood of Christian children. One, magic. Two, to slip into the food and drink of Christians to gain their goodwill. Three, to free themselves from stench. And four, something supposedly only known to rabbis. 
in a variant of unction that dying Jews were anointed with Christian blood with a ritual incantation to the effect that if the crucified Jesus were indeed the real Messiah, that this blood would cleanse the dying Jew of that guilt and serve to gain eternal life. If you listen to my episode on witch craze, you know about the quote-unquote Jewish stench, but I want to talk about that last thing right there. Um, Christians claiming that Jews use Christian children's blood to baptize themselves if Jesus is the real Christ is a Christian fantasy. Quite literally, it is a horrific fantasy. So who was Gabriel? On April 20th, 1960, six-year-old Gabriel, or Gabriel, was killed. I'm assuming you have, most of you have noticed that the date, but yes, it was also Passover. Happens every year. His parents worked in the field, but a nearby Jew was accused of his murder. Not only that, but he was accused of apparently taking Gabriel to Bialystok, where he drained him of his blood before taking him back to the field where his parents worked. There are very few records of what happened because Gabriel didn't become well-known until a little bit later. Roughly 30 years after his death, his grave was accidentally uncovered when they were trying to bury someone else. But in very typical saint fashion, his body was apparently totally fine and not decomposed, which is apparently a very saintly thing. Seems weird to me, but fine. So after discovering it was totally fine, they transferred his body around for quite a while after that, and his cult was growing. During one of the moves of his body, someone attached a placard stating that it was the Jews who had killed him. He was venerated as a saint from roughly the 1820s forward, but didn't receive an official canonization until later on, according to Kizenko. Apparently, it's difficult to find out the official dates as local people venerated their own saints without official canonization. It should be said, however, that he is widely acknowledged within the Orthodox Church as a patron saint of children and is venerated on April 20th. According to Kizenko, the sole reference to Gavriel in the text of the service to all the saints of Belarus is an easy-to-miss troparian in the Ode 7 of the canon. Enduring as an infant great torments from Jews, repugnant to God, thou hast become like a heavenly angel, O passion bearer Gabriel, pray now for all the children of our land. But wait, it gets worse. As one of the most famous blood libel cases in the area of Russia, Poland, and Belarus, Gabriel was used well into the 1990s to promote anti-Semitism. To quote, in connection with the day of St. Gabriel of Bialystok, the only Orthodox saint child, the Belarusian state television, on July 27, 1997, exploiting the topic of blood libel, bluntly stated that the Jew Shutko, with ritual purposes, killed the Christian baby Gabriel. The authorities refused to engage with dialogue with the Jewish community on these topics. Now, this is a translation from the original Russian, but you get the point. In 1997, Belarusian state television put out a film literally perpetuating blood libel in his name, saying that it was the Jews. But are we done yet? No. It's time to move to the Damascus affair. Set the scene. February 5th, 1840, Damascus, Syria, which was then part of the Ottoman Empire. A Capuchin friar known as Father Thomas, who was Italian and originally from Sardinia, and a servant, Ibrahim Amara, who is Muslim, disappear without a trace. They are never seen again. Despite being involved in some shady business, as said in Jewish Virtual Library, 
people didn't assume the worst of Father Thomas. So what did the monks do? Well, if you've been paying attention to the previous stories, I'm sure you can guess. They spread the rumor that the Jews had killed them for their blood, particularly for the upcoming Passover. Now, it is unclear whether or not they believe that the Jews could use Muslim blood of Ibrahim, or if Ibrahim was merely collateral damage. They never really discussed that part because they were really focused on this friar. At the time, Catholics in Syria were presided over by the French government, so it was set up to the it was up to the French consulate to deal with this matter. And to everyone's surprise, the French consul Ratimenton was a raging anti-Semite. He allied himself with the governor general Sharif Padia or Pasha. I'm sorry, I found two different spellings. I'm not exactly sure. I'm sure I'm butchering. I'm so sorry. So he allied himself with Sharif and they set out to find the culprits. And what was their methodology? Well, they took one out of everyone else's book, torture. They went into the Jewish quarters where the two were supposedly last seen and tortured a, quote, confession from a Jewish barber, Solomon Negrin. After literally being tortured, he said that he or seven other Jewish men, um, it's unclear whether or not he actually involved himself, but Seven other Jewish men, some of whom were in interfaith families, had killed the monk and his servant in the house of a man named David Harari. The men listed were David Harari, Isaac Harari, Aaron Harari, Yosef Legnado, Moses Abolafia, Moses Ben uh, Yuda, and Yosef Harari. According to Abigail Green, two of the men listed above were rabbis, and the other belonged to a well-known merchant family of the area. Green continues that they suffered the most severe beatings and cruelties while the, fi- while the 5,000 Jews of Damascus ran the gauntlet of threats, intimidation, and extortion. Several butchers were beaten to such an extreme that their flesh hung in pieces upon them, and all the children at one primary school were chained and incarcerated in the expectation that the fathers, for the sake of liberating their children, would confess to the truth of the matter. Mind you, again, friends, we are in the year 1840. 1840. So when a Jew came forward saying that he had seen Father Tomas and his servant leaving the town on the night that he went missing, he was literally flogged to death for speaking up. And after a, quote, energetic set series of house searches, the governor reverted to torturing the prisoners. I won't give you details on how they did it. I... I cannot ever forget it. It is bone chilling. Green continues and mentions how more Jews were implicated and it just got worse. One prisoner claimed to have secreted the blood in a bottle, which he delivered to Rabbi Moses Abu Lafia. The rabbi was beaten so savagely for his failure to produce this bottle that he literally converted to Islam, lending his authority to the ritual murder calumny. A rabbi was literally tortured into conversion for a crime he did not commit because he couldn't produce a bottle that did not exist based on a confession from someone who was also being tortured. Think about it. Or actually, don't, because it's about to get worse. A, Mus- a Muslim servant of David Harari was also tortured in confession that Ibrahim Amara, Father Thomas's servant, was killed in the house of Meir Farhi, a merchant, and that there were Jews present at the time of his murder. So Jews were rounded up again, 
including Isaac Levy Picciato. Now, Isaac was an Austrian citizen, and thus he was under the protection of the Austrian consul, and it was no longer free reign for the French consulate. And we'll discuss that in a second, but when they searched the Jewish quarter, they also searched the sewer, and they found human bones. Did they bother checking whose bones they were? No, of course not. They just took it as confirmation that they were right and buried them as Father Thomas, adding the inscription to his grave that he was killed by Jews. Yep, when they found more bones, they said it was Ibrahim. And according to Jewish Virtual Library, a well-known physician in Damascus, Dr. Legrasso, refused to certify that they were human bones and requested they be sent to a European university for examination. This, however, met, was met with the opposition of the French consul. The authorities then announced that, on the strength of the confessions of the accused and the remains found of the victims, the guilt of the Jews in the double murder was proved beyond a doubt. So the doctor said, I can't prove these are human. And they said, nope, they're human. And we tortured confessions. So we're obviously right. But let's go back to the Austrian. Essentially, after a series of important people sticking up on his behalf and on behalf of other Jews, the charges were officially dropped. But these charges were not dropped until people were very dead. Synagogues were destroyed and the Jewish population of Damascus had suffered greatly. And across Europe, these rumors spread anew, particularly in France, as was the French consulate spearheading the operation. The amount of anti-Semitism that rolled in waves across the globe was horrific. In the U.S., American Jews even came together and protested for their Jewish brethren suffering in Syria. And according to Jewish Virtual Library, the tomb allegedly housing Father Thomas's remains still stands in the Franciscan Terra Sancta Church in Damascus and carries the statement that he was murdered by the Jews on February 5th, 1840. But is this the most recent case of blood libel? No. No, it's not. Hello. If it sounds a little bit different, it's because I had to re-record this part. There was a weird bell noise over the entirety of this next bit. I think you hear it a little bit in the previous clips, so if it sounds different, it is different. I only noticed when editing. In 1928, a four-year-old girl named Barbara Griffiths wandered into the forest near her home in upstate New York. Because she was a four-year-old, she got lost. To quote, late on Saturday afternoon, September 22nd, A four-year-old girl, Barbara Griffiths, got lost in the woods and thick brush, which at the time covered the edge of the village just a couple blocks from her home. Quickly, search crew's family, friends, and neighbors went looking for her. But when darkness fell, she had not been found. Naturally, there was great concern. Autumn nights in Messina can be cold and damp. In those days, searches of this kind were largely conducted by the volunteer fire department, which included several Ku Klux Klan members in its ranks. Yes, you heard that correctly. Not only did they have KKK members within the town, they were part of the volunteer fire department. What we have to acknowledge is that the next day, the 23rd of September, would be the start of Yom Kippur, the holiest days for Jews. The residents of Messina including their KKK neighbors, began to spread rumors to, and to quote, there was an important Jewish holiday about to take place, wasn't there? 
wasn't there something about blood, Christian blood being needed in their rituals? Could there be some connection with the girl's disappearance? Blood libel made its way to New York and it was spreading quickly throughout the town. To quote, we don't know, do not know who in the Jewish community first heard these frightening insinuations. Perhaps, probably it was the president of the congregation, Jakob Schulkin, whose 21 year old son, William, had been escorted home by the police. William, who was more commonly known by Willie, was not necessarily of sound mind, but he was questioned by the state police and what he told his father, though he was confused, was enough to alert his father of the potential dangerous situation that was coming. Despite there being zero evidence, apparently a Jewish business had its cellar searched while others merely dealt with cops shining flashlights in their windows and going through their alleyways to find out if they could see into these Jewish businesses. The next morning, to quote, two troopers in charge of the investigation were advised by an unknown informant to question a man by the name of Morris Goldberg. One must assume that this suggestion was prompted by blatant anti-Semitism because Mr. Goldberg was on the periphery of the Jewish community. He knew that he was a Jew, that was all. For many years, he was employed by Alcoa, he was, so to speak, their token Jew. In fact, he was interrogated while on the job at Alcoa. Knowing nothing of Judaism, he pleaded ignorance. So these troopers, based solely on anti-Semitic rumors, found a Jew and questioned him. And not every Jew has the ability or the access or the interest in learning the entire history of Judaism. And that's totally fine but they found one Jew and used him as the spokesperson for every Jew in the area. Despite the fact that the Jewish community said he's not very involved with us, which again, no hatred towards this man. He had did nothing wrong in not knowing every detail of every Jewish ritual of every Jewish thing ever. But these troopers took that as an admission of guilt. He denied the accusations, but because he didn't know everything about Judaism, they didn't believe him. These troopers then went straight to the mayor, who is described in pretty much every writing I could find as a typical small town bigot. Based solely on the rumors of ritual murder and blood libel, the troopers entered into the synagogue on Erev Yom Kippur and wanted to take the rabbi to question him. Rabbi Beryl Brenglass from the Sena's Orthodox congregation, Adat Israel, did not go with them but rather he came on his own accord later to issue his statement. According to Dr. Yitzhak Levine, who wrote on this topic, when the mayor and the trooper attempted to put questions to him, the rabbi quickly and vehemently turned the tables on them, demanding to know who was responsible for the contemptible libel. In no uncertain terms, he denounced all who dared to accuse Jews of such heinous crimes in the 20th century, particularly in these enlightened United States. Certainly, he made clear, all of them should hang their heads in shame. To quote, after delivering his angry speech, the rabbi left abruptly. But what is more poetic than this Jew giving a supposed talking to to bigots waiting outside the police station? Little Barbara wandered out of the woods and was found before Yom Kippur even began that evening. Some say it happened while he, the rabbi was literally being interrogated. Some say right after he le walked out. But it didn't end with her returning home safely and unharmed. 
The people of the community didn't believe that their Jewish neighbors had nothing to do with it. And neither did their mayor, who organized a boycott of the Jewish-owned businesses in Messina. You know, which literally had active KKK members in its, in its ranks. I'm sorry, I need to remind you there. Their volunteer fire department was literally included active KKK members. And that was totally fine. But Jews just existing? Nope, not okay. So he called for a boycott of the Jewish businesses after she was already found safely. But he was up for re-election. And after the Jewish community reached out to allies and said, please help, he made an apology. A truly garbage apology, but... Don't worry, he did get reelected for his sixth term. And so the little tale of Barbara ends in 1928, and that is the last accusation of blood libel we have in the United States, but it is far from the most prominent. A couple other ones that I did want to mention, at least by name, is that of the Bielis affair in 1911 in Russia, where Mendel Bielis was a Jewish manager of a brick factory in Kiev, was accused of murdering a boy for ritual practices. And after two years, he was acquitted because he didn't do it. But what about modern blood libel, right? Because there is modern blood libel. QAnon is the perfect example of it. QAnon believes that the quote-unquote elites are harvesting blood particularly a chemical known as adrenochrome from child victims in order to stay young, viral, and on top of the world. They are pulling straight from the elders of Zion and Nazi propaganda and has been repackaged for more internet-friendly consumption. During the Holocaust, Nazis relied very heavily on blood libel. And conspiracy theorists in the modern day, even people who just like to sit on YouTube and talk about their favorite conspiracies are very often using repackaged versions of what the Nazis put in neat little packages. A lot of the time, if you simply change the term, change the name from Jew to reptilian, Jew to elite, from Jewish to satanic, you are looking pretty much word for word at blood libel accusations throughout the centuries. At the beginning of this episode, I encouraged people who are members of witchy or spiritual communities to stick around and listen, but I haven't really mentioned why so far. It's easy to shake your head and go, I would never believe a QAnon conspiracy. I would never get roped into that, but that's far from the truth. How many times have we witnessed things flutter through the spiritual community disguised as messages from the divine, as things we should all learn, things we should all know? I have seen things straight out of the elders of Zion, and I have witnessed blood libel be used against Jews, sometimes even admiringly, where witches say, well, I have to use human blood. It does this so-and-so, and and the so-and-so that they're talking about, strength, long life, vitality, all of these things originating in blood libel. Spiritual communities fall very quickly down these rabbit holes because 
Unlike a lot of other communities, spirituality allows for UPG, unverified personal gnosis. There are things that I believe that I don't have scientific evidence for, which is why I don't put my beliefs on anyone else. My beliefs are my own and they should not be put onto the anywhere as fact. But that's what happens. So many people spread QAnon as a methodology of spirituality. Do you know how many QAnon people are deeply spiritual? And I'm not just talking spiritual Christians. I'm talking witches, pagans, etc. And unfortunately, anti-Semitism flows very heavily within witchy and spiritual communities, meaning blood libel does too. And it may be under the guise of reptilians, the elites. Some people even like to use the Illuminati. There are all sorts of ways that it's quote unquote disguised within our communities. So being vigilant and calling it out when you see it is massively important. And with that, I have reached the end of this episode. If you've made it this far, I applaud you. I want to once again state that this is no means an all-encompassing episode. There are literally hundreds of stories I did not include, um, pages upon pages of info per story that I did include that I didn't have time to read. This is why I list my sources and, you know, you can find them in the episode notes. You can read them yourself. I tried to pull from a couple different ones, but I did want to cover the biggest stories because I'm sure some of you know, if you follow my social media, I get accused of blood libel fairly frequently. And I don't just mean people commenting Simon of Trent because they do. And they comment the names of supposed victims of, of Jewish cannibalism. But I literally have people accusing me of killing, of wanting to kill people and drink their blood. And I'm a vegan. I know, I know, I'm a vegan. I don't even eat meat. I have been vegan for over six years. You really think I'm going to make an exception for a Christian child? Sorry. Off topic, I know, but it is important that you know when you hear these things, when you hear people discussing drinking blood in this manner, when you hear people talking about elites drinking blood to gain power or to cure themselves of diseases, it's important to know that you are quoting and perpetuating things that originated in blood libel, things that got Jews killed for centuries, things that up in 1928, just the rumor of it was enough. We're not talking three, four, five hundred years ago. We're talking the Poe shooter utilized Simon of Trent in 2019. So I want you all to be cognizant of that. And I thank you all for listening. So before we get to sourcing, I want to say thank you to someone who left a review on Apple Podcasts. A huge thank you to T.R. Gleason, who left such a kind review. It made me smile so much. I promise I read every single one of the reviews, plus downloads, subscribes, favorites, and reviews on Apple Podcasts specifically are hugely helpful for boosting the podcast. So make sure to do so. And I might read it out loud. You can follow me on all of your favorite platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and more. You can stay up to date with me on Instagram at Jewitches, Twitter at The Jewitches, or sign up for emails on my website at uh, Jewitches.com. I promise I only send five emails a month, and if that. And it's not because I have restraint. It's because I only pay to send five per month. With that said, here are 
my sources. Erman, Al Albert Ehrman's The Origins of the Ritual Murder Accusation and Blood Libel. You can find that one on JSTOR. Second is Christina Stebnika's The Incident in Mestar, Jews and Christians at the Beginning of the 5th Century. We have BBC Newsweek, and that one was specifically talking about the discovery of the 17 bodies in Norwich. Then we have Martin Goodman's Trajan and the Origins of Roman Estility to the Jews. Uh, the Power of the Lie, 1144 to 1300. That's actually an excerpt from a textbook. From Medieval Tales to the Challenge in Trent, which was Magda Teeter. Jewish Encyclopedia, Hugh of Lincoln. Stephen Lach's The Legend of Little Hugh, which is available on JSTOR. Blood Libel on the tra Trail of Anti-Semitic Myth, which is Magda Tater, which is published by Harvard University Press. We have The Death of Little Simon and the Trial of the Jews in Trend, which is part of the book I just mentioned, Blood Libel on the Trail of Anti-Semitic Myth by Magda Teeter. Collections.countway.harvard.edu. On view exhibits show sages, scholars, and healers, Jewish life, Simon of Trent. Blood Accusations and Orthodox Liturgy in the Russian Empire Before and After the Bielis Case by N. Kazenko. Jewish Virtual Library on the Damascus Blood Libel. The Damascus Affair by Abigail Green. And finally, Messina Community Feature, which is on web.stevens.edu, golem slash Levine slash Hamodia. And then the QAnon Conspiracy Theory, Examining It and Its Evolutions and Mechani Mechanisms of Radicalization by Amanda Gary, Samantha Walther, Rukaya Muhammad, and Ayan Muhammad. With that being said, thank you all so much for listening. I can't wait to hang out with y'all again. <laughs>